Thanks for listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name is William and I'm the Executive Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee and our heart is to reach the city through loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We recently launched a new building campaign called Building Opportunities. Over the years, we've seen God do some incredible things and we're excited about this next step we're taking as a church. To learn more about the building campaign and to see how you can be a part, visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Raising aspect and the work end of it, we have kind of our final set of plans. We have all the final plans that are being drawn with all the mechanical and AC. We've had a hundred lines of red tape that we've had to cut because of the higher level of occupancy that the building is going to be at just because of the size. Um, but the good thing is, is we are at the tail end of that and we are looking um, in the near future to have all that stuff submitted and a little bit of a, a city process and then we'll, uh, we'll get construction rolling. But the good thing or the celebration is in all that... Um, our church has never been a church of extraordinary financial means. We have always been a church um, that people were generous, and they were as generous as they possibly could be. But at the same time, in all of that generosity, um, it, it's kind of the realization that we have a lot of young people at our church. If you look around, probably the median age is not over 25 in here. Um, and we know that, especially with a college, you know, heavy church, um, if everyone gives, shoot, if everybody gave 20%, everybody would give like five bucks each. Um, and we kind of realized that. And we've, you know, for us as a church, we got to the point where we knew that we were going to have enough money to last for the next three months. It was like, praise God, Jesus is real, praise report. Because we had enough money for three months. I mean, it was a big deal for us, and you laugh. But it, I mean, it was a legitimate celebration when we got to that point. Over the last couple months, because of many of your generosity and because a couple of people who who had incredible financial means, just extraordinary, extraordinarily generous to us. We have raised over fifty-five thousand dollars towards our building campaign. In fact, we're hoping to raise a hundred, but our minimum threshold was at fifty, and so we're just so excited to be past that minimum threshold to where we feel comfortable and really good moving forward into the future. So we're just so excited about that. We would say continue, continue to give, you know, to give towards that building campaign. Um, and we're so excited about the, the future with that and the, the potential to continually create opportunities to reach more people. So that's kind of the church side. On a personal side, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I just feel like I should tell you because I want to brag for a second. Um, if you don't know, my wife and I are pregnant, so that's, that might be new information for somebody. Thanks, I appreciate that. Yep. Which I know for all of you, again, that's old information because those of you who've been coming here for a while, you've been downloading the podcast all summer long, and you heard the sermon about halfway through when I talked about it and kind of introduced the whole, the whole Sunday uh, with the fact that we are pregnant again, and we're excited about it because I know all of you, you're like, man, you know, Ben's sermons, it's like Netflix, I just can't get enough. You know, I skip class because I'm like, what did he say in that verse? So we get that. Um, but uh, the, the cool thing or the fun thing um, is we found out this Wednesday that we're having a little boy. So super excited about that. And also, ladies, watch out. That's all I'm saying. My man's coming. I'll give, him about, I'll give him about 18 and a half years, okay? So and then, we'll, then we'll be rocking and rolling. Um, guys, it's compo time, so just step your game up. That's all I'm saying. He is going to be legit. The spirit of the sovereign Lord will be upon him, and he will slay in Jesus' name. Anyways, hey, hey, <laughs> You should go to another church. This is just this is just highly, highly, highly. Anyways, um, 
not sought after. So uh, all that to say is it has nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to tell you we're having a little boy, so we're super excited about it. We have a little 16-month-old girl, and she's the cutest little girl in the history of cute little girls. So um, we are starting a brand new series, and the series is called Built. And I want to tell you a little bit about one of my summer experiences, or a couple different summer experiences, because many of you, um, you traveled around again, you went home, you studied abroad, you went on some trips and all that. For a few summers in my life, I would go to this camp, in fact, for a number of summers in my life consecutively, I would go to this camp called Love at Work. Um, many of you have been to Love at Work. In fact, many of you have been on staff at Love at Work. And I'd go to Love at Work, um, and essentially what Love at Work was is it existed over in the Gretna, Greensboro, Quincy area, uh, which is about a half step away from here if you're familiar with the Tallahassee um, layout. And we would go um, into some, uh, some you know, disadvantaged uh, populations, really some, just some poor, uh, poorer neighborhoods and whatnot. And we would help um, by doing everything from building decks to, to putting siding on houses, putting new roofs on houses, um, building wheelchair ramps and all kinds of stuff. And as you'd go, you'd interact with the homeowner and you get to know people and whatnot. Well, my first year at Love at Work, um, I went as a volunteer leader and I was about 20 years old. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the male population at 20 years old, some of you are in that population right now, and you're going to identify with this. You are at the height of the necessity to prove your masculinity. Anybody with me on that one? <laughs> yep. <laughs> you can tell the guys that are in that boat because they walked in boat up this, this afternoon. You know, They walked in because they wanted to show off their summer gains because they've been putting in work this summer. They were debating going sleeveless or not when they walked in because it's a little bit hot outside, and we can always justify sleeveless shirts. And so... You walked in, and you're at the height of that, and I was at the height of that, and the, the problem is, is that kind of mass matches this, uh, this height of masculinity, but I was at the least amount of experience when it came to power tools, and I felt like it doesn't matter if I'm chopping off hands or cords, I am not showing weakness when it comes to these power tools, and I, when it started out, honestly didn't know a lot, a lot about building. I didn't know a lot about construction. I didn't know a lot about tools. I didn't know a lot about hammers. I didn't know the difference between the reciprocating saw and the sawzall, or is there a difference? You know, I didn't know a circular saw from a band saw. I just didn't know much about construction. And throughout the week, we started to build for them what was a deck. Started to post hole dig first day. Then you start to frame out. Like you put some, some, some four by fours in the ground. Start to frame out the deck. We start to put some siding on the house, fix some patches, fix some holes, take down some rotted wood. Started to build and frame in this deck. And all of a sudden, started putting stringers together. The deck starts coming together. And you're thinking, man, this isn't as difficult as I thought it was. The next summer, we got to roof a house. Start off by taking all the shingles off, and you take off all the tar paper, if there is tar paper, because hopefully there's tar paper. Bunch of wood, and you put wood back on, and you start building the whole thing back together. I remember about summer two or three of doing this construction, thinking to myself, you know, before I started, I didn't know how tools worked, and I didn't know how houses were built. But after about two or three years, I had this blissful ignorance that I thought, maybe if someone gave me the right tools and the right instruction, I would be able to build a house. I thought perhaps if someone gave me the right instruction, the right tools, because it's not that complicated. It's just kind of simple math and simple cuts, and you just, all together, you put together a house. I think that I could build at least the framework for a house. And as silly and honestly bombastic and overstated as that thought may have been, here's what I would love all of us to come to the understanding of as a church as we go through this series. That you have all the tools necessary you have all the skills necessary, and you have all the potential necessary 
to do something incredible for the kingdom of God. And God wants to use you to build his kingdom. He wants to use you to build up his spiritual house. Now, before we kind of get into our text today, I want to kind of preface what we're about to say with this. The reason why this series is so incredibly important is because all of us, or in fact, many of us were raised in different backgrounds. Some of you were raised in, you know, a Lutheran church, or some of you guys were raised in an Episcopal church, some of you guys were raised in a Baptist church, some of you were raised in no church, some of you were raised in non-denominational churches, some of you were raised in any one of about a hundred different types of churches, or lack of churches, non-religious background, parents weren't involved, parents weren't invested. But all of us, when we come together, we bring into the preceptions and the prepackaged ideas of what God has called us to do. And I would love for the end of this series for us all to be on the exact same page for what is the call of the Christian when it relates to being the church and doing the work of ministry. So as we launch in, we're going to be in Second Peter, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, interesting book. Peter's talking. Peter, by the way, this is the same Peter that was uh, friends with Jesus or you know, kind of makes it light of their, their relationship. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was very close with Jesus. And in his discipleship from Jesus, at one point, this is the Peter um, who, by the way, took a step out on the boat and started to walk on the water and then fell down. And Jesus, you know, kind of rescued him as he would do over and over with Peter. Peter was notorious for putting his foot in his mouth. But this is the same Peter who Jesus looked at him one day and said, who do you say that I am? And Peter looked at him and said, I believe, in fact, we believe that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him and said, very good. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And Peter, who was one of the founders of the church, would go on to see Jesus die, to see Jesus rise again, and to watch the, few, the first few years, in fact, probably the first few decades of the early church as the church started to unfold. And what was interesting was at first when the church started, at first when this movement of Jesus started, it was just this idea that God had sent his one and only son into the world, but nobody frankly believed it and it didn't have very much popularity. But as this little movement, this little kind of Jewish spinoff cult gained momentum, it all of a sudden received all kinds of in their day persecution. And when I say in their day persecution, because their persecution was very different than our persecution is. For them, you professing faith in Jesus could be killed by your government or by another religion simply because of the fact that you believed in Jesus. And Peter looks at this, and in light of that circumstance, in light of that situation, says, you know what? God is going to use you. God is going to build you. God is going to create in you something, in someone, who will do a great work for the kingdom of God. Now, here's why that's so important. Because for many of us when we walked in today, We've bought into the idea and the lie that God can't use me in a significant way. Whether it's because of previous sin in my life, or whether it's because of a prepackaged idea that the people that God uses are the pastors and the worship leaders. The people that God uses are the people with a title, deacon, elder. The people that God uses are the people who are on full-time staff with the church, the people who are on payroll, the people who have a position. But God, in fact wants to use and build each and every one of us. In order to do that, he says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, so 
talking to a bunch of people who are Christians at this point. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So he kind of launches into this idea. In fact, he's this, a little bit piggybacking on what he's just talked about, about people who have professed faith in Jesus. And he says, so here's what I want you to do as Christians. I want you to, to get rid or put aside all of these things. Now, pause. This list is not necessarily our list, but it is a list. But the point of the list is not simply to say these are the only things to put aside, but I want you to put aside whatever it is your sin struggle is. In other words, for them, he would say, okay, this church, this group of people, maybe your struggle is deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. But hey, maybe for you, maybe for me, the sin struggle is not that. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's self-centeredness. Maybe it's judgmentalism. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's one of about a hundred different things that it could be. Because here's the reality. Each one of us knows in our life, if you're a Christian especially, if you're a Christian, you profess belief and faith in Jesus. We all have struggles that we have a tendency and a pattern to come back to over and over and over and over again. Sin that we have a tendency to come back to over and over and over and over again. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put that aside. Now, there's probably none of us that are in here right now that said, what? God wants me to sin less? I never knew that about the Bible. That's just, man, I'm so glad I came to church today. I'm going to go home and pray and think about that. For all of us, that's kind of common information. But what we miss is the very next step, which is the application which makes that thought process possible. And here's what he says. So like newborn infants long for or crave pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, here's what what it says. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this idea of putting aside, and instead of just simply putting stuff aside, I want you to long for, and I want you to crave pure spiritual milk. I want you to long for, and I want you to crave, crave God. I want you to long for, and I want you to crave time with God. I want you to crave the Word of God. I want you to crave Jesus himself. I want you to crave and understand your need for God, for God himself, because of our sinfulness displayed specifically through the gospel. He said, I want you to crave that. Now, how many of us that are Christians can honestly say there is a craving inside of me for God. For many of us, there's a like for God. There's a desire, kind of. There's a I know, I feel, I ought to. There's a bit of an obligation for God. But I love how he takes us and now he says, come on, come on. Like newborn babies. Many of you will experience this as you become parents. And for any of the parents that are in here, you know this. When your kid wants milk, when your kid craves that milk, they don't shut up until they get milk. No matter what time of night it is, by the way. Three in the morning, they're waking the whole household up. 
until they get milk. Four o'clock in the morning, entire household. If you're in Publix at the supermarket trying to buy watermelon, the entire fresh produce aisle is going to know that your little kid wants some milk because they crave it. They long for it. They desire it. Maybe you have, maybe you're not a parent, but you've, you've had maybe a, a, a crazy crush on somebody. You've liked somebody at some point. And inside of you, there's this like desire. And, and with that desire, you, know, you do all, especially you know, guys, you do all kinds of geeky stuff that you, you know, you're not romantic at all, but all of a sudden you try to be like this like broed out romantic guy and it just does, it's a, it's a terrible failure. You know, all your friends look at you and say, dude, you know, bros before girls and you just don't care because none of that matters. Only thing that matters to you is that you have this longing, you have this desire for this particular girl. And as you have this longing and this desire to spend time with or to be around girls, vice versa, I think, but I'm not really never, you know, never been one. So I I can't claim that I know that intuitively, but I think my wife sometimes looks at me like, man, I just can't wait to spend time with that fella. So whatever it is, you felt this idea of, man, I want to spend time with, I want to, I long for a relationship. Shoot, and, and sometimes we get this over-emotional, over-passionate, you know, beginning of the relationship that's not sustainable. Let me tell you, if I spend two days away from my little girl, I want to spend time with her. A couple days ago, I had a really busy week this week, and I was coming home from the factory. We had all kinds of plans. By the, this doesn't make sense, unless you know that I don't work at the church. I run a meat company by vocation, so just had to clarify that because I thought, man, some of you guys are going to be completely in the dark as to why I'm talking about this. Anyways, so at the meat company, our packing machine was down. We were back behind in production. We were trying to get it fixed. I actually wasn't doing a ton of stuff to get it fixed. Hayden, who actually also goes to the church, was trying to get it fixed, doing a fantastic job. Everybody, shout out to Hayden, by the way. Thank you, thank you. I don't know why I said thank you, but he should say thank you. But anyways, so Hayden was doing a fantastic job. I mean, working his tail off. I was getting home late, mostly because I just wanted to be there to say, hey, I feel bad for going home every day early before you go home. You got here before I did. You know, you left after. But I had to drop some more sausage, which is what we make, by the way, off at my dad's house. And I knew that I hadn't seen, I haven't really spent time with my little girl in about a day and a half or about a day or so. And so I knew it was going to be a later night. But I drove across town to spend about 20 minutes, 30 minutes with Ava so I could hold her, hang out with her, and rock her to bed, eat dinner, and then drive back across town to drive back across town to drop sausage off and come back home. And you know why? It's because I long to spend time with my daughter because I love her. And Peter looks at this group and says, come on. This is the key. This is the key. For you to long to spend time. For you to crave pure spiritual milk. And what's interesting is in verse 4, he says, And as you do, as you do, in other words, in verse 4, the natural result of you craving and of you spending time with God is this. Verse 4. And as you come to him, as you spend time with God, as you crave him in his word, as you crave him in his spirit, as you understand your daily need for him, as you crave him in prayer, as you go to God and spend time with him, as you come to him, by the way, who is a living stone rejected by men, but inside of God chosen and precious. Now for us culturally, that doesn't mean that much, but for them it was a huge idea. 
Because they had all been put aside by culture. They had all been put aside by society. And they were living, as it talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1, at the very beginning of the introduction, he says, to the elect exiles. In other words, you are God's chosen people, but you are living in a culture that treats you like you're an exile in your own home because of your belief in Jesus. And so when you feel marginalized, I want you to know that God, in fact, was himself marginalized. God, in fact, was himself put aside, but he was the chief cornerstone who was rejected by men. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious. But as you come to him, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. In other words, here's what happens. here's, Here's the incredible things that happens. As you spend time with God daily, as you fall more and more in love with God daily, you know what happens? You begin to be built up into the person that God has called you to be. God transforms you into this living stone. He says that he builds you up. You're being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, in the result of this entire idea, the result of you spending time with God is that you now become the person that God's called you to be. And more specifically, you begin to do the work that God has called you to do. You see, here's what I've noticed about Christians. Let me just blanket observation. This may or may not describe you. Christians as a whole, we have a tendency to be more sinful than we ought and less productive than we ought. We have a tendency. Let me just be honest. In fact, if you're here, you're not a Christian. You're kind of checking this whole Jesus, God, church thing out, not really sure where you fall in it. You are probably saying amen, amen, amen to that. As Christians as a whole, we have a tendency to be more sinful than we should be and be less productive than we should be. We have a tendency to know that we should be more holy, know we should be more righteous, more righteous and know that our lives should produce more. And what's interesting is the key to all of that, he would say, is not simply to try harder, but it's to crave pure spiritual milk. You see, the tragedy that happens is for us as Christians, maybe you take an inventory of your life and you know that God's calling you to do something, you know God's calling you to be something, and you know that perhaps you take inventory of your life and your life has not bared much fruit at this point. Oftentimes, what we try to do as a response to that is, let me just go try hard. Let me just go do something. Maybe my life is more sinful than I know it should be. So let me go try to take this sin out of my life. Let me go try to hard, you know, hard, hard will my, my, my life into submission. You know, hard will my, my morality into submission. Let me try to white knuckle this thing and hold on and just maybe I can make myself good enough. And that was never God's intended plan. For some of us on the other end of that, you feel like God hasn't called you to do anything. God hasn't called you to do anything significant because the only people that God does significant stuff through are the people with a title or the people with a vocation, the people who can do it full time, the people who have a place on the org chart. 
What's interesting about this idea of a living stone is that Jesus was going to build this house. Jesus was going to use his believers, use his saints, use his people, use the Christians of the world to build up this spiritual house that would be a monument for God. And no stone in the house had more importance than any other stone except for one stone. In other words, there is no pastor stone in the house of God. There is no priest stone in the house of God. There is no deacon stone in the house of God. There is no apostle stone. There is no elder stone. They all have their roles. There is no admin stone. There is no I'm the worship leader stone. There is no I'm the community group leader stone. There is no you know, I'm, I'm the, the community outreach leader stone. There is no stone that is not equal to every other stone except for the cornerstone which is Christ himself which means and you can't miss this you you are just as important as any pastor with any title in the house that's being built by our heavenly father you are just as important You are just as critical, and you, in fact, perhaps, are more important. As Paul would say it this way, one of his epistles, he'd say, yeah, so Jesus gave, you know, he gave the apostles, he gave the elders, he gave the pastors, he gave the teachers. Yeah, God gave all those, but you know know what it goes on to say? That he gave each one of those. But the reason that he gave them was to equip the saints, to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. In our Americanization of what we've created church to be, it is the pastors and the leaders who do the work of ministry, but biblically, it is the people of God who do the work of God, and it's simply the job of the leaders to help support, to equip, and to train so that you can go and you can make an incredible difference where God has called you to be because God has called you to be a living stone. And here's what we know intuitively as a church. If we are ever going to become the church that God has called us to be, if we're ever going to do the work that God has called us to do, we feel deeply here at our church, and we feel, I know this is not just our church, many churches feel like this, we feel called to reach the city. We feel called to reach the entire city. But that doesn't happen as a pastor and a worship leader and a secretary and a kids ministry director and an elder do their job. That happens as every single person who calls themselves a Christ follower lives into the calling of God on their lives. But the key is, as motivating as that sounds, the key is for you and for me to crave time with God. Crave pure spiritual milk And the natural causation, the natural response, the natural product of when we spend time, we crave God, is that our life does bear much fruit, and we do live a life of holiness and righteousness. You see, so many of our problems, this is just to make it super simple, most of our problems as Christians would go away if we just simply spent time with God every single day. It's that simple. We try to overcomplicate it, overstrategize it. Most of our time, most of our time, most of our problems, most of our issues, most of our struggles would go away. Not all of them, there's always going to be a sinful nature, but most of them would become much, much, much easier. 
And our lives would become much, much, much more productive and fruitful for the kingdom of God if we simply spent time with God and craved time with God every single day. So let me give you a couple points of application, then we're done. Number one, if you've never spent time with God, or perhaps haven't in a long time. You used to do it. You did it at camp, or you did it at this one place, or my you know, freshman year I did, or you know, when I was in college I did, but now I'm in the working world. Wherever you are, if you aren't regularly spending time with God, go home, and every day this week, starting with John chapter 1, read one chapter from the book of John. I did that this afternoon because I didn't want to be the guy who gets up and says, hey, you should read your Bible, and I don't. So I spent some time this afternoon just going through and reading and rereading. Let me tell you, I've read through John chapter 1 so many times, and there were stuff that when I was reading through, I was like, man, this is gold. There's also stuff, by the way, that I read, and I'm like, what does that mean? You know, I need to research that. Let me underline that because I have no freaking clue. You know, anyways, it's a couple side things. Point is, point is, point is, I think, I think the key to the Christian life in falling more and more in love and more deeply and madly in love with the person of Jesus Christ that God sent is spending time with him every single day. And so would you be willing to spend time? Would you be willing to just one chapter a day for the next seven days? And the other side of it is I want you to spend a couple minutes in prayer. But when you pray... I want you to be honest in your prayer. Well, sometimes when we pray, and I'm, I'm so guilty of this, we have a tendency to pray to God and pray these over-bombastic, over-heightened spiritual prayers. God of the archangel of Michael, of you know, Jacob and Esau, and you know, God, I just pray, and you know, all that stuff. I love reading some of the Psalms because David's just so honest with God. He's just so blatantly, because God knows your heart. I would love it. If our prayers weren't, God, if you would, if you could, I would love. If our prayers were, God, I don't yearn for you. And I want to. Please help me yearn and long for you. Please help me crave you. Please help me desire you. Because I've given my life to you. But it's so easy for me not to long and crave and yearn for you. Because here's the reality. We serve a God and we love a God that so deeply loved us. He saw our sinful nature. He saw all of the mistakes that we would ever make. All the times that we intentionally know what God had called us to do and walk away from it. All the things that we would do in rebellion against God. All those things that you wish and you hope no one ever finds out. He saw it. And didn't hold it against us. But sent his one and only son to die for us. That in doing so, for anyone who would place their faith, their hope, and their trust in him, 
would have ultimate forgiveness, ultimate love that you no longer and I no longer had to earn our way into God's good graces. In fact, we never could even if we tried, but it's simply by the, by the death and the resurrection, by the sacrifice when Jesus took the sin of the world on the cross and paid the price that we couldn't pay. And that realization as you spend daily time with God gets driven so deep in your heart. That gospel message of our daily need for Jesus gets driven so deeply in your heart that you cannot help but develop a love back for him. And if we all did that over the next seven days and spent time praying over the next seven days, spent time in his word over the next seven days, we would probably come back as a church collectively and we might not have all the fruit, but we'd be on our way to more fruit. We might not be completely holy and completely righteous and we will never do that till we're glorified, till we're with Christ, but we would be a more righteous group of people. Because most of us as Christians, many of us as Christians, live in a state of fruitlessness and sinfulness. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's because for many of us, we just don't spend time with God. We aren't madly and deeply in love with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We don't desire and consequently we don't yearn and consequently we don't spend time with him. And we try to live this Christian life on our own. I'll end by saying this. If you're here, you're not a Christian, you're checking this whole thing out again, you're you know, relatively new to church and kind of on the, on the outskirts of, of whether you believe and don't believe, maybe you've been through some stuff in life and you've got you know, a story to tell and, and, and I'm sure if I were to sit down and, and hear your story, then, then I would probably say, man, I, don't, I, I kind of agree with you. But if that's you, here's all I want you to think about. How much differently would you think about Christians how much differently would you think about Jesus if Christians actually lived like that? How much differently would you think about God if when you saw Christians, you didn't see hypocrisy, you didn't see judgmentalism, you didn't see this kind of facade of a love and a desire for God, but you saw this deep, genuine, abiding desire for God. You saw this deep, genuinely, uh, this, this deep, genuinely felt joy as people entered into a relationship with God, and you saw that the people who were believing in this, who had this genuineness, also had fruit from their lives, and their lives actually looked like Jesus' life. There's a good chance. In other words, if you saw Christians living like Christians, you might want to be one. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm crazy. But I'll be willing to bet you would at least be more open to it. If you saw Christians who loved, loved loved God, who spent time with God every single day, and their, 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 their lives had the fruit and would bear witness to the God that they love and they serve, you would think differently about God. Let's pray together.